Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Mark Nepo's Things That Join the Sea and the Sky, Field Notes on Living. Uh, and if you're anything like me, it may not sink in by hearing it once delivered verbally. So if you'd like to sit with a written copy, you're welcome to mine. I'll leave it right there on that table after I'm done here. We keep looking for a home, though each of us is a home. And no matter where we run, we land before each other thoroughly exposed. This is the purpose of gravity, to wear us down till we realize we are each other. Though we think we're alone, we all meet here. Though we start out trying to climb over each other, we wind up asking to be held. It just takes some of us longer to land here than others. Once worn of our pretense, it's hard to tolerate arrogance. Once humbled, it's hard to withstand the, a litany of me. Once burning off the atmosphere of self-interest, there's a tenderness that never goes away. This tenderness is the sonar by which we sense the interior of life. This tenderness is the impulse that frees us. For anything is possible when we let the heart be our skin. The point is to feel whatever comes our way, not conclude it out of its aliveness. The unnerving blessing about being alive is that it can change us forever. I keep discovering that everyone is lovable, magnificent, and flawed. I am in the fifth grade and I am sitting across from the guidance counselor for the fourth time that month. You just need, an adult tells me for what feels like the hundredth time, to grow a thicker skin. The guidance counselor and I, whose name I have by now long forgotten, were well acquainted at the time, as I dealt with the unrelenting, taunting, and teasing from another girl in my class. Kelly was mean. Names have not been changed to protect the guilty. <laughs> she teased me, she called me names, she orchestrated painful recess exclusions, she spewed homophobic slurs and other insults at me constantly, she made fun of me for whatever she could think of, my good grades, my long blonde hair in two braids, the role I had had in the second grade play. She was a bully. And between the second and the sixth grades, Kelly and I were assigned to the same homerooms. And despite many years of petitioning the school to just move one of us to a different classroom, to put some distance between us to no avail, it seemed that our elementary school fates were bound together. I tried so many things over the years, ignoring, crying, retorting, telling teachers, Teachers tried, my parents tried, the administration, I had to say, did not try. And things would ease off for a while, but then it would start again, the taunting, the teasing, the name-calling, the insults. Just ignore her, adults would tell me. You can't let her see how she's affecting you. That'll only encourage her. You just need, I heard over and over, a thicker skin. Now, I was a kid who would admittedly cry pretty easily, and that is still true to today, 
But this propensity to have my eyes well up with tears when Kelly would tease me probably did get the results she was looking for, as the adults around me pointed out. But how many of you got messages like this as a child? Have thicker skin, have a stiff upper lip, don't let them see you cry. Sticks and stones might break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Be strong, be a man. How many of you heard things like this? I think back to those messages, fully aware as an adult that those messages likely would have been louder and stronger and even more punishing if I had grown up as a boy. And I think there has to be a better way. Because those words hurt. The teasing, the name calling, it all hurt. It taught me that the tenderest parts of myself, the parts where I was the most unsure of myself and my place in the world, if they weren't hidden away, those parts could be used to, to turn on me, to hurt me, and it was dangerous to let my most tender parts show. And looking back, of course, I can see that this story is as much as about Kelly's pain as it was about mine. But as children, we aren't quite yet wired for that kind of abstract thinking and empathy. Or maybe, as an adult, I have grown a thicker skin. In the spring of fifth grade, the guidance counselor came into each fifth grade class to tell us that Kelly's mom had died. Cancer, and that she would be missing school for the next few weeks. I had had no idea. But how could I have? She and I had never shared anything personal about our lives, and I wonder now how much pain she must have been in, how tender everything must have felt for her, desperately trying to discharge some of that pain to externalize it, and I wonder, where were the adults who were failing to see this lost girl's tenderness? I find it so interesting that the word tender can mean two different things, one being gentleness and the other being painful. The root of the word tender means soft or easily injured or stretch, which makes me think of my skin and how tender and painful and easily injured I felt when I was bullied. And all of those adults around me who kept telling me I needed a thicker skin. Which is a weird analogy when I stop to think about it because thick skin, literal thick skin, only comes from scars. From the places where there once was an injury where pain has occurred and has been made stronger in those places. After Kelly's mom died, I felt so bad for her that I vowed to stop hating her, to have more compassion and empathy for what she was going through. I wish I could say that that vow transformed the pattern, but a few weeks after she returned to school, the teasing ramped up again, the taunting started, the names were called, and we landed once again on our own and individually back in the guidance counselor's office. My story with Kelly ended when she was held back at the end of sixth grade. After years of asking to be separated, we finally were. And I'll admit I celebrated her being held back, and I felt really guilty about it. I knew it would be a hard thing for her, but the pain that she had caused me over those years, five years, was, made me so much less empathetic and tender toward her after all those years. 
And I wonder what in Kelly's life had taught her that you need to cut other people down to have self-worth. I wonder if she got the love she needed, though I suspect not. And I wonder who she shared her most tender parts with. Brene Brown says that the most difficult thing is that vulnerability is the first thing I look for in you and the last thing I'm willing to show you in me. In you, it's courage and daring. In me, it's weakness. So often we feel close to other people when they are vulnerable with us. Yet we hide our own vulnerability for fear that our tenderest, most unprocessed parts might be too much, too intense, too close to home. Have you ever heard of the phrase of vulnerability hangover? It's when you share something vulnerable and as soon as it's out of your mouth, you immediately regret it, start second guessing, or feel like you shared too much. In our culture, we are encouraged to lift up the beautiful, the shiny, the Instagram-worthy, the promotions, the perfect hair days, the first day of school pictures, the pleasantly plated meals, the perfectly coordinated outfits, the smiling kids. We are discouraged from sharing the mac and cheese for the, and frozen peas for the third night in a row dinners, the screaming toddlers, the doubts about our relationships, our career paths, our loneliness, the hard work we are doing in therapy, the fights with the people we love, the times we've messed up and don't know how to fix it. To share these things, it seems, would be too vulnerable, too tender, too real. But let me just say, I have never gotten closer to another person by being perfect. I have gotten closer to other people when I have shared what is most real and tender in my own life and when they have shared theirs. And the story of hiding our tenderness is a story of loss. It is a story of losing the chance to authentically connect with other people from our most tender hearts. And I believe that this story is part of what's making us lonelier. Researcher Robert Putnam, in the author of Bowling Alone, found that in 1985, Americans reported that they had, on average, three people with whom they could discuss matters of utmost importance. By 2004, that number had dropped by about a third, down to two people with whom people say that they can discuss important matters. And most heartbreakingly, the researchers found that one in four people, one in four Americans, say that they have no one with whom they can discuss important matters. One in four people feel that they do not have anyone that they can share their most tender parts with. Most of you know that almost two years ago, my dad died by suicide. And I will be honest, the why question for me is the hardest part of being a suicide loss survivor. And while I have so many questions that will never be answered, it is clear to me that my dad was very lonely and that he was struggling with a depression he could not name and that he did not know how to ask for help. He was an exceedingly shy and gentle and kind man who had been encouraged in his growing up not to talk about his feelings, who had absorbed the messages that it was weak to ask for help, and that he needed to hide the most tender parts of himself. 
Shortly after my dad died, one of his siblings said to me, you are so strong. Stay strong, okay? We'll get through this together. And I remember saying back to him, yeah, yeah, I'm strong, I know. But let's, let's also stay soft. Let's never not let this be a painful experience, a tender experience. Because to stay strong without also staying soft about it all, it felt like it would discount the pain, the loss. It felt like it would do a disservice to our tender, broken hearts. And I wonder in this world that does not make much room for tenderness, what would it look like to love, to honor, to care for the most tender parts of ourselves so that we can love and honor and care for the tenderest parts of other people. I feel like there is so much we can do, starting with being in community in this age of isolation. Communities like this can be an antidote to isolation. And I have seen you do that again and again, my friends. We can start by bringing our whole selves to community and working to create a community that is safe enough for people to bring their whole selves into the community. Because it drives me batty when people say that we need to be more authentic or tender or vulnerable without being real about what that might be risking for somebody. Whether it's risking relationship or reputation or overexposure or stigma, tenderness does not always feel safe in the world. So part of our work as a community is to create spaces where tenderness is welcomed and where people are not judged. And we can model being tender, especially I think about this with young boys, especially if you were socialized male. I think about our religious education classes where we start with a check-in every week because it is a chance for kids to practice building empathy and compassion and understanding and connections with other people, which are lessons that are as important, if not more important, than anything we might be teaching in curriculum. We can listen openly and without judgment when others share with us, and we can flex our courage muscle because vulnerability is a practice of courage. It is a practice of courage to try to share that tender thing that we have long needed to share. And we can try that because we believe that the chance for connection and for being seen for who we are is worth the risk. In the late 1990s, the Shell Oil Company began to move into deep water drilling. And they built a $1.5 billion oil rig the size of two football fields to drill for oil in the deepest parts of the Gulf of Mexico. They named the rig Ursa. Now, whatever our feelings are about the fossil fuel industry, this is a story about the humans who worked on the rigs, which, as you may be unsurprised to learn, was almost entirely men. Now, oil rigs are an exceptionally dangerous place to work. Most of the workers on the oil rigs have known folks who have died on the job, and horrific accidents are not uncommon. Often workers were given just 15 minutes after witnessing an accident or a death before being put back to work. And the culture of the oil rig, at least according to the men interviewed for the Invisibilia podcast, was a hyper-masculine culture where the dominant ethos was to never show any weakness, 
never let on if you aren't feeling well or if you don't know how to do something. And the man who was put in, this, in charge of this new project, the URSA, was named Rick Fox. And on a whim, he hired a leadership coach, a French woman named Claire Noir. And through the course of her leadership work, she decided to put everyone, oil executives, managers, team leaders, team members, everyone, grudgingly through her leadership program. And her leadership program, over a year and a half, while this new rig was being constructed, asked the team that would work on this new oil rig to do hours of team, build team building exercises, journaling, drawing, telling their, their life story to a room full of people who they had worked with for years but had never had a meaningful conversation with. It kind of sounded like coming of age for oil rig workers. <laughs> they shared honest feedback with each other, they shared what they appreciated about each other, and so on. And on the URSA, once it was built, that especially giant oil rig with new technologies that none of them had ever worked on, with higher oil flow rates and deeper water, was a much more dangerous condition. And they saw an 84% decline in the number of accidents. Productivity exceeded the industry's previous benchmark. And the decline in the accident rate was so dramatic that professors from Harvard Business School and Stanford decided to study it to see how this dramatic shift had occurred. And what they discovered was that when the men were more open with each other, it wasn't only feelings that they were sharing, but technical information started flowing too. Being able to communicate openly and admit mistakes and learn publicly made everyone safer. Previously, the men who had gone through this program had spent a lot of energy trying to preserve an image of themselves as technically competent and emotionally shut off. And once the culture shifted to one of more openness, there was also a culture of vulnerability in admitting when they couldn't figure it out, admitting when they needed help, and admitting when they needed mistake, had made mistakes. And just as critical as the technical structures the researchers found was the invisible emotional structures of the community. The vulnerability that they had learned to share literally saved their lives. My friends, I think we could all gain something by taking the risk of admitting just how tender our fragile hearts can be, how gentle, how easily bruised, how we can be strong and soft at the same time, just like the tender skin that surrounds our fragile bodies. Soft, yet strong, because our tenderest parts are, I believe, what connects us to other people. They are places that allow us to be the most authentic and real and held and connected. So let us embrace our tenderness. Let us make space for the tenderness of others. And let, most of all, let us share our tenderness, healing ourselves and the world. May it be so, and amen.